episode one of Austin vs. Bronte, Bonnets at Dawn. Um, this is episode one. It's Steventon vs. Howarth. 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 I sound like I have a lisp when I say that. I want to say Hayworth, but it's not Hayworth, so <laughs> there we go. Um, I'm Lauren. I'm Team Bronte. And I am joined by Hannah. And I am Team Shark. No, Team Austin. <laughs> I thought that would be like a funnier bit, but... You just really threw me there. Who's <laughs> Shark? Who's Shark? I haven't read any of their books. Yeah, wow. Terrible, terrible joke. Uh, no, my name is Hannah and I'm Team Austin. <laughs> Why did I do that? I don't know. It's our first episode. We're a little bit wonky. <laughs> It's morning for you. It's yes. one thirty in the morning for me. So I'm just going to wow. be pounding the tea, trying to like stay awake because I go to bed at like 10.30. I am definitely like an old lady. We can do this on my time zone, your time zone next time. I promise. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I, you know, a lot of you may have skipped the intro episode of the podcast because I know I definitely skip a lot of intro episodes of podcasts and I skip intros and in books like a terrible person. Um, so maybe we should just go over what exactly this is um, for those of you who are just meeting us for the first time. Sounds like a great idea. Tell us more uh, about Shark. <laughs> Shark was an 18th century feminist. No. Um, no idea. So yeah, so this project is basically um, it's a podcast and it's also going to be a book and basically I'm team Bronte I'm trying to bring Hannah over to the dark side it won't happen it absolutely will happen um, I want you your appreciation for the Brontes to grow um, and you are going to try to convince me basically that Jane Austen is the best writer ever right yeah something like that so it's it's difficult because obviously I'm I've got the easier job, I feel, because you already like Jane Austen. You've That's read true. her stuff, like you're a fan. It's just that you prefer the Brontes. Whereas for me, it's like I tried to read Jane Eyre once and uh, didn't do it. Didn't finish it. Tried to read Villette. Didn't do it for me. I think the most I've read of a Bronte thing is like a quote from a letter where they say they don't like Jane Austen. And that mm-hmm, was quite mm-hmm. early on. And I think that was just like, oh, these bitches are hanging around. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're picking on Jane. Like, yeah. I think for the Brontes, and, you know, I'm going to make this case over the next however long we're going to do this project. Um, we have 12 episodes, at least 12 episodes planned. But I think these are going to run really long. And that might double, to be honest. Yeah. Um. I think for you to properly appreciate the Brontes, like you have to have a full picture. And so I think really, you know, looking at their life and their poetry and then their books, I think you're going to, you're going to fall in love with them. Well, we're going to find out. Yeah, we're going to find out. We'll see. Um, So yeah, we have the podcast where we're just basically going to compare and contrast the lives of Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters and then we also have a book. So, Hannah, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the book? Uh, so, the book is 
going to be a collection of essays about Jane Austen and the Brontes. It's going to have a bunch of really cool illustrations and comics. Uh, Lauren's doing some like craft <laughs> tutorials. Um, you know, like how to build a life-size, oh, I can't talk, how to build a life-size Jane Austen out of cat hair, I was going to say. But then I stumbled on my words, you know, and it was like the shark joke. Oh dear. Just didn't laugh. We're off to a rolling start here. A rolling start. Yeah, we've got some great artists. Uh, Weiwei Pang, Julia Sheila, uh, Jack Teagle, J.M. Tomlins. <laughs> Tolman, you're right. Monica Raz. Every time. <laughs> oh, J.M. Tolman. J.M. Tolman. Monica Raz. Just... Oh, Matilde Vanglian, uh, Valentin Gallardo, like just amazing art is going to be in this book. We're very excited. And it's going to have stuff like, what would it, you know, what would they have been like if they met at high school? What would it have been like if they were professional wrestlers? All valid questions. I actually also really want to do a gender swapped um, Jane Eyre comic as well. So I'm super excited about that. Um, I guess we should explain very quickly that uh, Hannah and I both come from the world of comics. So that's why we are also including comics in the book. Um, I am an editor for Ladies Night Anthology. And um, um, oh, yeah, go I ahead, thought go you were going to say and Hannah is. And I walked all over it. All over my credits. Just go say, oh, I'm not talking over it. <laughs> And Hannah is, um, I'm just going to do it for you, the founder and editor of Comic Book Slumber Party in the UK. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What she said. Oh, dear. We're going to get through this first one. We're going to do it. So this episode, we're just going to go over um, Steventon and Haworth, where they grew up. And this really breaks down to a battle of um, North England and South England, I think. And I have tasked Hannah with the job of explaining to our American audience, like, what exactly that means. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. Take it away. So this is really hard because, like, I am from the South of England. And I say it's like tricky i feel like it's a tricky subject um like i did some reading so i guess to begin with it's worth noting that like i grew up in hampshire which is where jane austen is from and i didn't really have a concept of what was north and what was not the north so for the longest time i thought places like birmingham were the north of england but it turns out there is actually this magical land in between the north and the south and it's called the midlands because it's in the middle and like that's adorable a bunch of my family is actually from there so like i've been to the midlands a lot but i used to think all of these like funny accents i was like oh they've got accents because it's the north and we don't have accents in the south but the accents in the south uh tend to be closer to this thing called uh, received pronunciation and for the longest time that was all over the media it was all you ever heard spoken on the television if you read the dictionary and the dictionary tells you how to pronounce a word it doesn't say like this is how you pronounce the word in Leeds and this is how you pronounce the word in Cornwall 
it just is received pronunciation and it's this way of talking that um i think comes from like cambridge like oxford and cambridge and it's quite like the queen's english is like another another word for it so you've got like this accent divide definitely and then i realized that like just historically there's a lot of stuff going on so the north had a lot more ore and coal and things that you would like dig out of the ground so it's more industrialized and so you had all of these industrial communities that kind of sprung up in the industrial revolution and then in the early 19th century i think um that all started to like die down and leave and like machines came in and people lost their jobs there was about a hundred years of minor strikes that kind of happened like every decade or so um not in my lifetime because i was born in 1990 (laughs) but there was like a huge mining minor strike in the 80s and that was kind of like the last big one um and they made like a film about it called billy elliot uh so if you want to know about the north i would say watch that because that's about as much as billy elliot that's that's where i started do you know what i did to prepare for this discussion is i went and i watched north and south yeah by elizabeth gaskell yeah elizabeth gaskell which gaskell friend of charlotte brontes oh really and also yeah her first official biographer do you know what i wish i wish elizabeth gaskell was a bronte because i've totally i've totally been in north and south land you're you're into it i'm into it gaskell's good Um, did you did you check out the adapt the adaptation for the bbc I did. I did. did it was good. Did you like yeah. Richard Armitage? Yeah, he's great. I actually, um, he's never played Darcy, has he? He like he like he's like an actor that I actually feel like could do Darcy Are you and kidding? Rochester. Are you no. kidding? No, he's Smolders in he's that not... uh, North and South. Yeah, he doesn't for sure. have to be a Darcy, but you know who I can totally see him as Captain Wentworth. Hmm. Oh gosh, Wentworth. Wentworth. Do you know? I thought of you the other day because someone on Twitter told me that uh, Cumberbatch should play Wentworth, and I no. really wanted to. No, Cumberbatch isn't allowed to play anyone in Jane Austen. But... <laughs> he probably totally will, though. I he... bet it will happen. Yeah, Mister Collins. <laughs> no one's casting Cumberbatch as Collins. Well, I think they should. I actually really fancied the guy that was. This is terrible. Like this is not important, but <laughs> the guy in the Joe Wright adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, that actor, Tom Hollander, yeah, was like my favorite. He's like my favorite actor. I think if I was Charlotte Lucas, I would have married the little twit. Oh, hundred well. <laughs> percent. I love, I love Tom Hollander. But He's you're you're totally best. you're totally wrong about Richard Armitage's Darcy. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I've got it. Super edited. right. Uh, we need to save this for the adaptations episode of this podcast. But so you've got Elizabeth Gaskell, right? But have you heard of Mary Ann Evans? Oh, tell me more about Mary Ann Evans. Well, so Elizabeth Gaskell, I guess is she Northern? Uh good question. I if don't she, come on. I don't if know. she was mates with the Bronzes, I'm gonna say yes, but I have no clue. There's no there's no evidence to back this up. <laughs> so you've got the Bronzes in the north, we've got Jane in the south, and then in the middle of England what do we call that, Lauren? What have we learned today? The Midlands. The Midlands. Uh, so the Midlands has Mary Ann Evans, otherwise known as George Eliot, who was the author of books like Middlemarch. 
So Middlemarch is later than like Jane Austen. Well, Marianne Evans is later. But I guess, so I'm guessing like closer to the Brontes. But in my head, I realised when I was thinking about this, that if we were being really accurate, then we would have these three groups. If it was kind, if it was coming down to the North and South divide, which I personally don't think is. I think it's more to do with like how they were raised, maybe. But I think it's like but I North think Bronte geography like totally does affect it. Well, I'm going to make that case later yeah. on. I've I've read the show notes. I know what <laughs> fight your brain to me. I'm ready. <laughs> I've got notes of my. Own. <laughs> <laughs> I should protect my show notes. Like I should not put them in a shared document. Yeah, because you do yours first, and then I'm just like, oh, I see your point. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna work on an argument against that. Um but so I did actually uh because I felt weird about being a southerner talking about this, I asked my uh good friend and screen printing partner, Chloe Moore, to tell me a little bit about this because she is from the frozen north. Oh my god. She's gosh, from Wakefield. She from? Uh Wakefield okay. near Leeds. So she's oh, got like excellent. a few words to say. Hello, my name is Chloe Moore. I am originally from Wakefield, but I now live in Bristol. I actually happen to think that the North and South Divide is way more exaggerated than it is in real life. So, especially in like film and TV, you are... You're led to believe that the North is a very certain thing and the South is a very uncertain thing. You're led to believe that the North is this grey, industrious place where it's bleak and it's grim. And the South has these lovely green pastures and everything's beautiful and golden and perfect. Like in Game of Thrones, where everything in the North is fucking snow. Can I swear? <laughs> <laughs> everything's snowy and there's a big wall and everything. Oh, God, there's doom and hell and winter's coming and what's going to go on? But in the South, everybody's lovely and they're golden. They've got silky blonde hair. Have you, have you watched Game of Thrones, <laughs> Yes. The South is horrible. No, it's not. The South is supposed to look perfect and idyllic. And the, point, the whole point of Game of Thrones is that it's not. Right. So the point I'm trying to make <laughs> is that I, d- I don't think there is as huge a divide as we are led to believe. Do you think being northern has shaped your character? Yeah, I do. I think people's pride in being working class is definitely more prevalent in the north than it is in the south, and I'm assuming that just comes from the 80s and everyone was down the mines and there is still even families that aren't necessarily working class anymore like there's a lot of families that were once upon a time working class and they're now pretty well off for themselves there still is this weird pride of being a working class family and eating potatoes out of a field i know my family are do you feel very northern living in the south because where where are you from originally and how long have you well wakefield i've lived here for four years now um, I do definitely feel very northern. There is p- some parts of being northern that is seen as a novelty in the south, which I'm assuming is probably the other way around as well. There's certain parts of people's life where if we grow up in the south, that would be a, a lot of a novelty to northern people. Nobody eats pie out of a can here. People don't really know what scran is. And southern people will never understand how nice it is to walk into a pub in London and it's a Sam Smith's pub. There's a lot of joy (laughs) (laughs) that you will never understand. Um, What else? I think a lot of people assume that the North is a simpler, more quaint land, which isn't also isn't true. 
because you have huge cities now like Leeds and Manchester which are actually just as big and bustling and as thriving as places like London are um, what else? People are friendlier. I think it's, well, it's different moving from the north to Bristol because Bristol kind of is its own little pocket. It isn't really affected by anything that's going on around it. But a lot of people do tend to be friendlier up north and they say hello and they will know about your day and they talk to you in the street, which is something that... Can you, can you do an impression of a southern person? Can I do an impression of a southern person? Mm-hmm. My impression of a southern person would just be really, really horrible Cockney London. Go on then. You all right, mate? Oh, I'll go on then. Oh, come down to the market. I'll save some goods. Trainers? Trainers, 20 quid, 20 quid. All right, go on then. All right, bye. I like that when you did your southern accent, you still said, come down to the market. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't come do it. Come down to market. Yeah. I think, I think that's everything I have to say. But I just, so... So Chloe says all that, but I don't agree with it because I think you have this in any country. The capital city is where the power and the influence and the money is. Uh, Political decisions will affect the capital and then that will kind of trickle out. And the further away you get, the less healthcare and education and support and stuff there is. So it's not Mm -hmm. just the north. The furthest south we can go to like Cornwall, they're also kind of cut off and like the accents are different. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's like, yeah, I think it's proximity to London and your ability to travel to large populous cities. Like, like Chloe said, the no- that there are cities in the north that are like the sparkling jewels. They're like the London of the north. And like, that's great. But that's recent. And like mm-hmm. Jane Austen was going to London and Bath and those places. She didn't lie at Bath, but she was going to it when like when she was alive. They, they aren't mm-hmm. things that sprung up after her time and that she was kind of isolated while she was writing. Whereas I imagine the Brontes might have been a bit more tucked away. Yeah. Like they weren't going sure. to the Trinity Kitchen in Leeds City Centre to eat a curry wrap, which right. I, I have done. But, you know, I'm also not a great novelist and maybe that is the reason. I will say a lot of people do kind of assume that they were just like sort of tucked away on the moors and like never went anywhere or saw anything, but they were a bit more sophisticated than everyone thinks, but we we will get into that later. (laughs) So that's like, that's North and South. Watch North and South and watch Billy Elliot. There you go. Yeah, for sure. I think that's all the education you need really. Yeah. And like tweet at us at bonnets at dawn and let us know if you think that Richard Armitage would make a good Darcy. Okay, moving on to Steventon. <laughs> just, just moving quickly on. So, just moving quickly on. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little story now about a young woman called Jane Austen, who was born on the 16th of December, 1775, the seventh of eight children. I think I relate to that a lot because I've got five brothers, Lauren, and so anyone that's got like an abundance of siblings is like in my in my ballpark um i they, forgot that you had that many brothers yeah there's a lot i'm the only girl i'm the only Way girl too many uh, so what i think is really interesting about the austins is that so jane lived until she was 41 and she was the youngest one to die mm. and of their parents uh only 
their father died in their lifetime. Their mum, their mum outlived Jane at the at the very least. So they all they all lived for quite a long time. And obviously, like that is partly due to their financial circumstances and their proximity to doctors and you know what they could eat and stuff. But I think it's good going, you know. Yeah. Also, well done, Cassandra, for getting those eight out because like some of some of the brothers' wives were just they were stuck like we'll talk about we'll talk about how many kids uh edward had in a minute so she was the seventh of eight children uh they were like a super warm and friendly family they talked a lot uh they would read to each other in the evenings they would put on these theatrical performances their dad was a curate uh so he's like a I don't I don't know enough about the church really to I wanna say he's like a vicar, but if someone knows more about it, they might say that a curate is not like a vicar. Uh so he worked in the church. Their mum married down a little bit, like her family, the Lees. Her, so her mum was Cassandra Lee and their dad was George Austin, and Cassandra Lee married George Austin despite him not having the most money in the world. He had this living, he had like a bit of money and also he tutored people um and the tutoring thing actually had quite an effect on the family because it meant that at home without being sent away to school jane and cassandra kind of had access to somebody who was used to teaching who was knowledgeable uh some of the brothers ended up going to oxford so it's it's a family that like has discourse and they're lively and you know it the overall childhood that she had kind of went on to shape her as a woman so i really don't agree when people are like jane austen couldn't have written those books because she was uneducated i think that's nonsense you don't have to go to school to be educated yeah it's complete nonsense they say exactly the same thing about the brontes and yeah what people are missing is both george and patrick were educated men went to oxford and cambridge and this was their job was to educate others and they educated their children so it's not a huge leap exactly and like her mum um her mum taught them in like music and painting and like things like that now like jane austen does come back a lot to accomplishments which i'll talk about later but you know like they had a mum who would have been expected to be able to do certain things and like maybe they weren't like the polished gems of the social world where it's like they could speak french and latin and they could decorate tables and they could paint and sketch and embroider like maybe that wasn't the case but she could hold her own in a conversation and obviously she she did all right out of that eventually mm-hmm. 200 years and we're still talking about it so good going but i think the thing that always interests me most about her is just her relationship with all of her siblings especially her brothers um i've never really had a sister so i like read about her and cassandra and i'm like that's nice it's kind of like I don't I don't really get it. So the firstborn was James. He was like the family heir. Did you know that James Austin was considered to be the writer of the family? I did not know that. Yeah, so he was a poet. He wrote the theatricals that the family would put on. Um so there's that whole bit in Mansfield Park where they put on that play and Fanny's like, Oh my gosh, don't do it. This is bad. You shouldn't do it. But like Jane Austen was doing that all the time. Now, has anyone ever like, because there's all these conspiracy theories, which again, we will talk about later, but has anyone ever like asserted that 
James actually wrote those books and not Jane. Maybe. I don't, Possibly. I can't we'll wait. Look into it. I can't wait to find out if that is the case. <laughs> um, James was funny because he, at one point, he really wanted to marry their cousin Eliza, uh, but she wasn't interested because he was going to join the church and she thought that that was a really boring profession so he ended up marrying uh someone called mary uh well she was his second wife and at around the time that their dad decided to retire mary was like yeah you should go so that i can move into your house and like have your servants and the money and all of your stuff so she was like very forceful and obviously jane at the time um this we're jumping ahead a little bit here but uh, in her mid-twenties, Jane was moved to Bath and she didn't want to go. And she had this sister-in-law who was like, okay, I'm going to pack your bags. See you later. Bye. <laughs> I'll post your things. Get out. It was all Mary's fault. Yeah. And so like James was kind of under the thumb a bit with that. Um, but what's what I think is kind of interesting about James is that he, so he was published. He and their brother Henry published this uh weekly like this weekly periodical called the loiterer which was just full of their writing uh jane wrote for it as well and uh that was published in oxford and london and then it was collected but because they stopped publishing it it kind of put james off publishing altogether and it was the only thing he ever had in print was the loiterer um which you know he he loved to write uh, as much as Jane I think if you've got a family that produces two writers who have enough like drive to get their stuff into print like there's something going on at home like yeah for sure you know and it's not it's not just the writing like Hen- Henry was very involved not as a writer but as a publisher um he did write a little bit he wrote about being in the army but he, he's he's the reason that um uh a lot of Jane's books went to print, especially the ones that were published after her death. So, you know, in the same way that the publishing world isn't just made up of writers working in a vacuum, you know, there's editors, there's designers, you know, like three three of the eight children were involved in in writing and, and publishing. So that's really cool. Um, there is another son, the second son called George. Now, uh, George is he's a kind of a sad story so he was actually sent to be fostered by another family um it's believed that he maybe had like epilepsy um some kind of uh a lot of places will call it like a mental infirmness uh and the family that were fostering him were actually also taking care of one of cassandra the mum's um brothers called thomas who again had something wrong with him mentally and instead of sending them to live in an asylum, they were sent to live with this uh, kind of local farm family. Mm-hmm. And uh, in like in some of her letters, Jane refers to talking with her fingers, which suggests that she knows sign language, oh, which is really honest. interesting. But you know, we don't we don't really know a lot about George except I think he outlived her for ten years. And oh, wow. the mum didn't leave him anything in the will. There were these annu- annuities that all of the other children received, and uh, but not George, George wasn't included. No, <gasps> no. But thankfully, well, so the family did pay uh, for his upkeep. Henry uh, was one of the people that paid, like, really took charge of that. I think in later okay. life, 
But Edward, the third son, the next one, uh, I think he was the one that actually gave up his portion of the inheritance to George's care so that there'd be more money there. Now, the reason that he was in a position to do that is that he was actually adopted by a much richer family. So he, you know, he had stuff going on. He didn't, he didn't need this yeah. pin money. I love that. Like, what was so special about Edward that he gets to be adopted by another family? He wasn't there. He wasn't mentally infirm. And he was the next <laughs> oldest child, I guess. Oh, that's it. Just luck. Yeah, well, it's it's a numbers game. Like, when, when it comes to a, a large family with a lot of sons, the, who are you if you're not the heir? Like, there's only yeah. so many jobs to go around. There's only so much money. There's only so many professions. And a lot of professions did rely on who you knew who could get you a commission who could get you into the right school who who knew who and those connections like there's there's less chances if there's more of you so at 12 uh sorry so when he was 12 um their father's relatives thomas and catherine knight uh kind of stopped by and visited the family and it's actually the knights that owned the estate of steventon where jane lived and their father was a curate at Steventon so this is the family that's giving their dad his profession right and so Cassandra and George kind of trot out Edward and they're like hey look at our son isn't he nice (laughs) and then the knights are like yeah this guy's great we're going to take him on a holiday so at 12 he goes on this holiday with the knights at 16 he's like finally officially adopted and he actually went on to inherit Steventon a place called Godmersham and Chawton and Jane eventually went on to live at Chawton now she does talk a lot um and I think we're gonna have an episode about this I hope we do because I have a lot of feelings about her thoughts on adoption of like less affluent relatives into much wealthier homes Mm -hmm. uh or just even people like visiting wealthier families Uh, and I think she comes back to it in both Northanger Abbey and Mansfield Park and I do wonder, like, how much of that is just being pulled from what happened with Edward and how he was kind of raised up above the rest of them. Right. So he's, so the other, it's not, it's not super interesting, but he had 11 kids. That's a lot. That is it's a lot. Too, it's too many kids. And his wife, Elizabeth, uh, she actually passed away uh, after the 11th child. So... I guess the lesson that I've always taken from that is that don't have more than 10. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's when you stop 10. 10's the final number. Too many. Okay, so there's another brother, uh, Henry. So I've talked a little bit about Henry because he was the one that helped publish The Loiterer. He went on to publish uh, Jane's books, um, especially like Persuasion in Northanger Abbey after her death and in her life he was helping her negotiate the deals and putting her in touch with publishers now the thing lots of people are like Henry was Jane's favourite brother but actually I've been doing some reading and I think he wasn't her favourite brother I think Francis might have been her favourite but that's arbitrary like who cares it doesn't matter (laughs) Henry Henry was the relative where it's like I mean do you have one in your family where it's like oh Henry's done this and everyone's like oh what has he done now what is Henry up to because he he was like I, re- I relate to Henry he's he was always doing something silly in the eyes of his family mm-hmm. okay so like publishing 
like well, he just always had these ventures and these new ideas and he was always trying things uh mm-hmm. he was so univers- he's like my uncle kevin okay I got yeah it. you've got him. he's university educated and then he decided to join the army he became a captain in the militia so obviously some of jane's early work include lots of uh, officers so her brother oh, was yes. an officer he then decided that he wanted to marry and he married their cousin uh who was she was eliza hancock and then she married a french man and then she had a french name that i can't remember or say so i'm just going to call her eliza eliza at one point did kind of fancy marrying james but like i said he went on to become a curate she wasn't interested and you know the uh, mary crawford in mansfield park is like Mm -hmm oh i could never marry anyone who's so boring you know based on eliza obviously because she's like frenchified and she's got all of these airs and graces so you know didn't she marry a french aristocrat yeah there's a lot like eliza mary they're the same person so eliza marries henry henry's like well oh i'm not gonna get enough money doing this it's terrible there's like i can't progress far enough so i'm gonna quit and he became a banker. So he was a banker for a while. He set up a bank. And then he lost lots of money. Like a lot of his relatives had invested. And then he lost all of their money. And when that happened, it was like, oh no, this is terrible. I've made a big mistake. I know what I will do. By this point, his wife had died, <laughs> Eliza. So he became a curate. And eventually Perfect. went on to be um, the curate at Steventon. <laughs> so Nice nice he kind of like right back into that career yeah he went full circle but so yeah henry like i feel for you henry i'm sorry like middle child syndrome look at me (laughs) so i guess the next person to talk about is cassandra uh she's jane's only sister she's two years older and um there is so there is one like authenticated definitely jane austen painting that was done of her and it was done by cassandra it's not it's not finished it's a little bit smaller than a postcard and it's kind of on display at the national portrait gallery it's really easy to walk past it i remember doing laps for ages when i went to see it and it's really small and then you you kind of have like this awkward moment you're like jane and then you remember that it doesn't really look like her one of That's one like, of their nieces said there is a look which i recognize as hers though the general resemblance is not strong yet as it represents a pleasing countenance it is so far a truth so it's like okay so she's it's not like, she's not ugly not really. so it kind of looks like her but it also doesn't it's not a strong resemblance so like thanks cassandra it's like she tried she clickbaited us with this portrait <laughs> it's like you want to know what she looked like tough she also like burnt two-thirds of jane's letters so again it's like oh look all of these letters survived because i kept them safe but where are the others where are the secrets gone that's a real shame i mean that happened with the brontes too and it's like the secrets what gossip would we have known they must have they must have known so much about each other because they they were just inseparable their entire lives like even to the point that when cassandra was sent to school jane two years younger not old enough to go was also sent because they they just weren't to be separated and cassandra was the person that was nursing jane uh, right up to the very end of her life 
they always lived together they were moved by the family to bath together they were not inseparable because being women of the time they would go on these like long trips to visit family but while they were away they just wrote to each other constantly they were always talking and they really were kind of supports to each other now both women did get engaged at various points in their lives cassandra was engaged to one of their father's uh, ex-pupils a guy called thomas Fowle, and he was he was really keen to earn like a bit of money before they got married which i think is a common storyline mm-hmm. um and unfortunately he went on this uh mission to the mediterranean uh, as a chaplain and he got yellow fever and he died while he was away so they never married he did so leave sad. her a tiny little bit of money oh that's nice yeah it's all right um and so she had kind of like a bit of independence it was about a thousand pounds and so in later life she she had that that she could kind of rely on but edward had his estates you know like edward stick stick him in a cottage edward right that's his nickname stick him in a cottage edward <laughs> um so he put them up but so so she had that um and she she was very much like a doting aunt so although she didn't have children of her own when you've got multiple siblings having double digit numbers of children (laughs) you know you're you're just fine yeah and i think after um so uh jane died first like i said and then their mother died and they had been living in this cottage with a woman called martha lloyd who was like a close family friend so you had these four unmarried women just hanging out and then frank or Francis Austin, the next sibling, he actually went on to marry this Martha Lloyd character. Oh. And Cassandra uh, was staying with them uh, and she had a stroke. Oh, God. So For a minute there, I was like thinking it was sort of Golden Girls-esque before, you know, Jane passed. Yeah, like they're just there like playing cards and and like hanging, drinking gin. I don't know. It was it was really helpful that Cassandra was there because it meant that um, because there was somebody else to kind of manage the household a bit. Jane was mm-hmm. able to just really focus on her writing, and then when Cassandra would go away on these trips, you had uh, Jane having to like take control and like do these chores, and she really valued what you know what her sister was doing. And like they had mm-hmm. servants and things. I think they had three servants, but women like women had stuff to do you had to plan your meals yeah. you had to collect scraps of fabric for quilting yeah it was a lot of work it's and, still a lot of work and their mom was a hypochondriac she was you know how uh oh. mrs bennett has her nerves mm-hmm. so like the mom needed like a lot of care and attention and seeing to uh you know there, there, was, there was stuff going on at home mm-hmm. but francis so francis i want to talk about the last two siblings together uh these are my boys francis and charles they were born either side of jane so it went francis jane and then charles was the baby now both of these guys uh served in the navy now like i was saying before there's not like a huge amount of professions left to the younger sons and luckily they both got these naval commissions and it really was the making of them Uh, francis went on to become an admiral of the fleet and charles went on to become a rear admiral I don't know if you know this about me, Lauren, but I'm a big Horatio Nelson fan. Well, who isn't? Who isn't? I went to Admiral Lord Nelson's school. Like, I went to a school dedicated to the guy. I'm from Portsmouth. I'm from his hometown. He left Portsmouth when he was 11. 
I was like, me too, Horatio, I'm leaving as well. But I didn't go till I was 14. So I didn't, I didn't go to see, you know, I, it's not the same, is it? I've got to stop likening myself to Admiral Lord Nelson. I just, I just moved to Bristol. I just changed school. Anyway, so <laughs> they were in the Navy. And uh, so Francis served under Nelson, which is great. And Francis almost served at the Battle of Trafalgar, but he was sent on a convoy mission to the Mediterranean, so he missed it, which oh. is so funny. It's like the greatest naval battle of all of history. <laughs> and he got sent on an errand. <laughs> like poor Francis. I bet he would have made so much money doing that. Well, but he did all right, though. He did fine. He still did all right. So people think that Captain Wentworth, uh, one of my favourites, is uh, kind of quite closely based on Francis. Mm-hmm. And when you read Persuasion, uh, and Mansfield Park has naval references because of Fanny's brother, but Persuasion is really where it starts to come out. Jane had so much respect and so much admiration for naval officers and the lifestyle and the means of taking a man from kind of any walk of life, really. Well, not any walk of life but a man of little income and lower means and really raise him up through society mm-hmm. just through like like honest work and you could you could start moving in uh, the circles of society through working hard and doing your job and i think that's something versus that... just being born which is yeah. kind of interesting because like you know and we're gonna have a whole podcast dedicated to like what she did for romance writing and for you know and regency which is its own genre within uh romance and you don't see a lot of self-made men in that yeah genre you see a lot of dukes and earls and you know so that is very interesting i don't do see a lot of navy seals and contemporary romance so there you go (laughs) like not even just contemporary romance adam driver he's a navy seal is he? I wouldn't know. He was before he was an actor. I, oh, my I housemate know. told me that might not be true. Maybe he was a he... circus seal. <laughs> that actually makes more sense to me. Yeah. He's not on my hot list. Is he not? Okay. I I could. I would say I'm. I'm not about casting American actors in my Jane Austen adaptations. I think that's completely fair. But if he was English, I would cast him in one. He's got like he's you know he's he doesn't have the Hollywood look. He's like no, he doesn't. Unique looking. I'm so. not a fan of his look. Well, it doesn't matter. I know it doesn't matter because I've got this great fact about Mansfield Park, which is that a bunch of the ships that are mentioned in it are actual vessels that her brothers served on. Mm-hmm. Isn't that cool? So the that Elephant cool. and the Canopus were Francis's ships where he served under Nelson, and then for Charles it was Endymion and Cleopatra. Oh, and that's it for those guys. So I guess to sum up that long thing about all of her siblings and when we start talking about the books themselves I'll be able to kind of tie in the connections to her family but she travelled to visit people uh, not just her siblings but like her mum's relatives in like Bath and London and all over the country she had a lifestyle where she was talking to people she was meeting people in different circles her siblings had quite a like a wide range of jobs and like their friends would have been different and where they lived would be different so she had all of this source material and she just funneled it into her books like there isn't a single book by Jane Austen that you read 
and you cannot go oh this character is striking like this relative this storyline is very similar to what happened to her when she was in her early 20s you know things like that and I think that's really cool the more Mm. you know about her home life and her childhood and her siblings like the more you know about her writing I think that's great yeah for sure I think the exact same statement is true of the Brontes as well (laughs) oh I just saw though I've I've been talking for like 45 minutes about this so I'm so sorry (laughs) it's fine I've just been drinking tea um but you know we're gonna move into the Brontes now so if anyone needs to take a break in the podcast this would be a great place for you to pause or you know just just keep listening if we had so, adverts, this would be an ad break. Oh, I know, right? If you want to sponsor <laughs> this podcast, like hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. That'd be great. We'll we'll take whatever you're offering. Unless you're Benedict Cumberbatch. God, don't want you anywhere near it. If you are Benedict Cumberbatch, <laughs> please give me a call, please. Um, so yeah, there's actually a lot of similarities between um their fathers, I think especially is a good place to start. Now, I told you a lot already about Patrick Bronte. Yes. But um, we're going to go over it again. So I hope you're, I hope you're ready. I'm so so ready. (laughs) We're so excited. Um, He was born in Ireland. And so he was born in 1777. And Jane was born in 1775, correct? So just two years after her. So Jane and Patrick are contemporaries. Um, he was born in Northern Ireland. He studied really, really, really hard, and he got a scholarship to um, St. John's, Cambridge. He also was a curate. He became a curate. Um, my favorite like thing about Patrick, well, there's a lot of good things about Patrick. He's kind of an odd duck, I have to say. Like, <laughs> we'll, We're going to get into that later, but... Um, when he got to St. John's, he actually changed his name. So Bronte is not the original name. And that was actually one of the first things I started researching when I like got this idea for this podcast and for the book. Wait, like, so that's a weird, that, that's a weird name. Bronte is a strange name. name. It's not even their name. So it was either Prunty or Brunty. There was no standard spelling for their uh-huh. last name. So he gets to St. John's and basically he's like... A couple of things either happen. We're not sure what yet. Either the registrar is like, I don't understand what you're saying in your Irish accent. I'm just going to put Bronte down. Or Patrick decided to change it himself. Um, I kind of think he changed it himself. He was he studied the classics. He was a fan of Greek mythology. Um, Bronte is like the Greek word for thunder in Greek mythology. There's like a cyclops named Bronte. Um, so I think I want to, I want to lean towards the thunder bit because I also think that Emily Bronte's, uh, last name should be thunder. It just is too fitting and it's just too perfect. (laughs) So he also, you know, he becomes a curate. He marries, uh, now here's the thing I keep seeing. So it's spelled Maria. A lot of people pronounce it Mariah. Someone has got to just like send me a note on Twitter and let me know how it's pronounced. I'm going to call her Maria. So he marries I, Maria Branwell. You have any thoughts on this? You know, oh, yeah. This? Only that um, maybe it's just like a time thing. Just because... It could be. I feel like there are Mariahs in... who Who's a Mariah? There's definitely a Mariah in an Austin. 
but I can't remember who it is. Like I just I just know I've heard it, Mariah. Mm-hmm. So of the time like, I'd say maybe Mariah, but maybe you'd say Maria now. Yeah, unclear. It's spelled M A R I A. So I'm I'm just gonna be contemporary and go with Maria. Uh Maria for now. Um she was from Cornwall. Her family now I don't have it in my notes, but I pretty sure that they were like they were shopkeepers like they had a like a tea shop so she kind of like cassandra had a little bit more money than patrick she kind of is marrying down a little bit um she was also a little older though so um it was supposedly love at first sight sure so there you go she called him my dear saucy pat and then they like proceeded to have six children (laughs) say it again what did she call it (laughs) My dear Saucy Pat. Saucy Pat? Is it just... What are you That's... saying? <laughs> what is Listen, it? I, I don't know. It was just their thing. That's... Huh? that's uh, Yeah. Thunder. Thunder, lightning, Saucy Pat. <laughs> they got married in 1812. And they proceeded to have six children pretty much right away. So Maria Jr. is born in 1814. Then there's Elizabeth. Then there's Charlotte. There's Patrick Branwell, who we're going to call Branwell from now on. Call him Branflake. Branflake. Yeah. No, I don't. Yeah. And then there's Emily. And then there's baby Anne. And Anne was born in 1820. So they had these kids pretty pretty much back to back. Okay. Um, and they moved up to Thornton, which is in Bradford. Geography. Who knows? So, it's in the... We've established. I do not know. <laughs> is it in the Midlands? It is not in the Midlands. Is it in I Billy Elliot? I believe it is in uh, Yorkshire. It is in Billy Elliot. I think that's where that uh, actually that takes place. Well, I know. Yeah, I know. Crazy. So um, they're up in Thornton. One of the reasons that Patrick actually moved up north was um, during the Industrial Revolution, you have this big population boom in the north of England and you have opportunity basically for vicars, priests, whatever, whatever we're going to call them. Yeah. To go up there and, you know, work with the people. Um, I've read accounts that he wasn't really well received because, (laughs) uh, just because people were sort of not really receptive to, you know, this guy from the Church of England who's getting money. You know, like, they, they just were kind of like, we want to do our own thing. Leave us alone. Yeah. You're you're strange. We're not into it. But whatever. Um, in 1820, right after Anne is born, I believe, they end up moving eight miles west from Thornton to Haworth. Um, so Haworth, just to give you, like, a little bit of... Okay, here's a fact. It's 204 miles north of Steventon. So there we go. How long How long does that take by horse? Oh, God, days, I'm sure. Okay. Weeks. I don't know. We I should, have not maybe, been on a horse. <laughs> maybe we should do it. We'll record the next episode on horseback as we ride from Steventon to Howard. That would be, oh, God, that would be quite the thing. Right. Me on a horse. Oof. Haven't done that for like 30 years. <laughs> Um, so I have not read a lot of pleasant things about Haworth. It's, uh, I mean, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place, but it was not so great during the Industrial Revolution. 
So it's the textile industry up there. There was a huge boom that this like the town could not handle basically for their population. So it is very dirty. Um, here are a few facts. They had 69 toilets for 2000 people. So there's no drains. Uh, the village drinking water is polluted. Um, one of the reasons it's polluted is because you have so many deaths in How Howarth, like so, so many deaths. Um, basically, I think that like children, like 40% of the children were basically dead before they turned six. Oh, man. Yeah. And Patrick's just really busy when he moves to Howarth, basically burying people like he maybe is performing up to like six um, funerals a day. And so these bodies are stacking on top of each other. Oh, and those bodies actually, like the rotting flesh is actually polluting the drinking water. No. So all that disease is going back into the drinking water. Yeah, for sure. So, uh. yes. So, um, you know, it's funny. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week and they were talking about Wuthering Heights in the podcast. And this woman made this comment about how dramatic Emily Bronte was. She's just like, ugh, people were just dying all over the place. It's just like, ugh, come on, that doesn't happen. And I'm like, okay, but in Howard, it was happening. But also, like, I I feel like there was less medical care. <laughs> like, people died. Exactly, it's exactly. Like, people died. You You watch stuff through a modern lens and it's like, Marianne goes for a walk in the rain and then she gets a fever and everyone's really worried and it's like yeah yeah like it happened how's it like houses were cold doctors were expensive we didn't have antibiotics exactly what, what do you think was happening <laughs> exactly people are dying all over the place so I mean and if you also if you were to google a picture of the parsonage where they lived um You'll see on one side, there's just, you know, moors. There's just like this vast, you know, wild expanse of land. And then on the other side, there's this insane graveyard. And just, it's crazy. It's crazy gothic. Like, Google it. Take a look at it. So, I mean, you, they're just like looking at death all day long. Oh, so it's, what? yeah. It's just next to a graveyard. Oh, yeah. It just like, you know, just look out. From your window and you see like all of these tombstones it looks quite nice in like the summer but i bet in the winter it's like grim it's a little grim yeah. it's a little grim a bit severe I mean, so the you know the mortality rate there um you know the average age of death is somewhere between 26 and 28 so uh, that's that i mean oh that's higher than i thought you were gonna say yeah yeah it actually is so i mean the brontes all died very young but they actually, you know, outlived a lot of their friends. So there you go. I will say Howarth today sounds lovely. You know, I really want to go there. I think we're going to try to go there in August. And um, looks like it's a nice tea room like place. Yeah, know, I want to go in the summer. I think I'll get yeah. scared if I go in the winter. <laughs> I think so too. There's lots of like antiquarian bookshops and pubs and 
Like, it's very much a place where I would like to, you know, vacation and just, you know, eat all day and like walk the moors. That sounds pretty great. It's really nice that you can see the parsonage because um, although the house at Chawson uh, still exists, you don't, you, you can't see the parsonage at Stevenson where Jane Austen grew mm-hmm. up. Uh, it was demolished by Edward uh, because <laughs> of like flooding and like misrepair and stuff. So they just knocked okay. it down. So it's really nice that you can see, you can see it. Yeah, it's preserved, and they they have a lot of their um, stuff back actually at the parsonage. We'll do, oh, we're doing a whole episode on it. Um, so yeah, that's what um, Haworth was like. Not not a cool place. So, speaking of death, we'll get a couple of deaths out of the way here. Uh, so in eighteen twenty one, Maria was diagnosed. Well, we're not quite sure, but think it was cancer, okay. or she was still recovering from Anne's birth. Not sure. But anyway, she does die a very long and kind of slow death. In 1825, Maria, her daughter and everyone's sister, she is sent home from school with graveyard cough. Oh. Which is consumption, which is tuberculosis. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds serious. Yeah, it's pretty serious. Um, She passes away. A month later, Elizabeth... Her sister is sent home from school and she dies as well. So these guys are hit very hard with a lot of death. So again, can't really criticize Emily Bronte for being, you know, dramatic and killing everyone because that's kind of basically what her life was. It does sound like, I'm going to, I'm so sorry if I keep doing this, but it's like Jane and Cassandra were sent away to school and they got sent home because of a typhus epidemic, but they both Mm -hmm. survived. And so in a lot of ways, it's almost like there are these families that on paper should be the same, but you've got one and it's grim, like they all die young and the mum dies and and then you've got this other family in in the South where it's just like, (laughs) I got really sick, but I bounced right back and we all lived until we were adults. Like that's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, Patrick has this, you know, response to them dying um, where he he brings his other daughters home from school. So um, Charlotte and Emily at this time were at Cowan Bridge, which was a school for clergymen's daughters. Okay. And it they also had an outbreak there as well. Um, and so, yeah, he's just like, no, bring my girls home. Everyone's going to, like, stay in the house. We're going to not talk to anyone. We're all going to just stay here and stay alive, basically. Which you really can't blame that. Nice. Um, But, yeah, I, you know, he is, we've said this before, he was an educated man. He was really concerned for his daughter's future. Um, you know, here he is. He doesn't have a lot of money. These girls have no mother. Um he tries to get married. I think he tries to engage three times, basically, but no one's really <laughs> interested in this guy with these kids and not a lot of money. Um, so he's really, really concerned for his um, children's future. He puts a lot of time and energy into educating Branwell. So he's like, okay, you're the one boy in this family. You have to provide for your sisters. You've got to grow up. You've got to make something of yourself, just like I did. And you have to provide for your sisters. Um, But to the girls, he's like, okay, I don't know if all of you are going to get married. I don't know if this is going to happen. So you also, you know, need to become educated and need you're going to need to find work eventually. 
but for a period of time, he does keep all of the family um, in under his roof. And he brings um, his wife's sister up from Cornwall to come, you know, kind of take care of the kids. Yeah. And then um, they don't have as many servants as the Austins. They basically just have Tabby. So there's Tabby Ackroyd. And um, she is a, uh, a distant relative of Dan Aykroyd, the actor. So there Who's you go. Dan Aykroyd? Oh, God, he was a Ghostbuster. He was on Saturday Night Live. Um, you're, uh, you were born in 1990. I'm a baby and I'm English, so I don't know, I know. what you're talking about. Have you uh, not seen Ghostbusters? I think, um, so this isn't relevant to anything, but when I was mm-hmm. a child, I watched Ghostbusters and there's the bit where there's a scary white white monster coming out of the cupboard and then as an adult i watched a film called poltergeist and i realized <laughs> that my mum had put like had seen poltergeist was playing on the television thought it was ghostbusters and i'd watched that oh dear so i was like oh ghostbusters is the scariest film i've ever seen <laughs> and i my oh my god and so We're i've gonna... never been like super keen to watch it as an adult because i was really traumatized by watching poltergeist as a child <laughs> and like i would talk about this film and i'd be like uh this is uh, what film are you talking about what green slimy alien oh anyway, wow that is like oh my god we're gonna fix this we're gonna fix this next month I, my mom here. made up for it because she was like okay. a big part of me reading jane austen but <laughs> like damage god. control god well okay well the Ackroyd fact it doesn't it doesn't really ring true for you or it doesn't work for you but it's Tabby okay. Ackroyd Tabby Ackroyd well here's something about Tabby Ackroyd um I mean Patrick just you know he kept trying to find a lady but he was striking out all over the place so he ended up having a relationship with uh Tabby or she she took care of that for him well she was you know she made bread and she you know Made, other things as well made bread yeah mm-hmm. there you go so um yeah so you got all these kids at home and they're all really really close uh but i think that the sibling dynamics are pretty interesting here so Anne and emily are the youngest and they are very similar to jane and cassandra so they just they never want to be apart um they're very 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 close uh people describe them almost like twins in a way. Um, then you have Charlotte, who's the oldest, who's kind of trying to take charge, even though she's also like the smallest. Um, and then there's Branwell, who is the son, but he's also just a giant fuck up, basically. And yeah. so you kind of have the two older ones and then the two younger ones. Yeah. But there is an interesting kind of like over time, you see that um, Charlotte's relationship with emily is really interesting like like they kind of butt heads a lot but i think that she really wanted to be closer to emily and was sort of had some jealousy between emily and and Anne. okay so there's like this little power struggle over emily which i find really interesting um so yeah let's go through the kids here real quick so we have Anne, the youngest. Um, she's also maybe the weakest. She probably, she had asthma. Um, she was also the peacemaker. Um, she was also described as the prettiest, which 
we'll kind of talk about that again later because that might have also inspired some sort of some jealousy with Charlotte. Okay. Um, uh-huh. you know, yeah. Then there's Emily, and Emily is my favorite Bronte. <laughs> is this Thunder? Uh, this is Thunder. <laughs> we should definitely just call her Thunder. Um, she's very solitary, but she, it, unless she's with Anne, like she doesn't kind of want to be with anyone else. Um, Emily is a Bronte that we pretty much know the least about, I'd say, but people love talking about her. They love speculating about her. So, you know, I've read that she was possibly autistic. I don't quite think that's true, but it's bandied about quite a bit. Um, also that she was anorexic. Um, I've read that she had visions and was a mystic which if you had to choose one of those three things that you think is most likely which is it visions Visions. for sure visions yeah i'm sure she was haunted by visions of something um she was an animal lover we do know that she had two dogs keeper and Flossie. so keeper is a mastiff and i've also read a story that she once punched a keeper in the face for being lazy which i'm not really sure what she punched a mastiff in the face she doesn't even care and for being lazy like i'm not sure what keeper was supposed to be doing (laughs) (laughs) i don't really know what his job was and then she had flossie which was um a cavalier king charles which i'm very partial to because i have a cavalier king charles flossie sounds like a cavalier king charles totally totally uh tricolored calf if you're wondering uh she loved the moors and she was always like out on the moors and she was always like with nature and the animals and like tadpoles like she loved playing in the streams so she was just nature girl um also another one of my favorite emily stories is that once she was out on the moors and she came across a wild dog and the dog bit her uh but she just decided to like go home and get like a hot poker and cauterize the wound and just like oh went about God. her day. That's disgusting. <laughs> she just was like, this is fine. I'm just going to go ahead and, and make bread. She was also very domestic. She loved um, like housework, like cleaning. Um, she was the only Bronte sibling that was allowed around their dad's gun. So Patrick had this gun that he would just like sometimes fire in the mornings. Oh, yeah. And the only Bronte that he sort of trusted to like also clean and like fire the gun would be Emily, which I think is rather interesting. I would have picked Charlotte for sure, but. <laughs> and then my favorite uh, quote about Emily uh, comes from Ellen Nussie, who was a really good friend of Charlotte's from school. That And she said of, of Emily, even in her own family where alone she was at ease, something like dread was mixed with affection felt towards her. I just think that's so. Amazing. People are a bit like, oh, like, uh, what mood is she gonna be in? Yeah, I think, I think she's just like that difficult person in your life you love, but you just you have to psych yourself up to go to brunch with them. Yeah, you're like, I know there's gonna be a situation. Like, I just, I'm not sure what I'm gonna walk into. I bet the bronze like, didn't brunch. Probably not. Like, if they were alive today, they wouldn't they wouldn't be brunching if they did like emily would make it though do you think yeah maybe yeah, they'd brunch sure. at home but like yeah not out she doesn't want to go out okay she definitely wants to stay in um so then there's branwell 
And uh, yeah, Branwell, tutored by his father and, you know, classics and Latin and supposed to make something out of himself, doesn't quite get there. He wants to be a poet. He sends off his poetry, sends off his like stories to magazines. He's constantly rejected. Then he's like, okay, I'm going to be an artist. And his father even helps him set up a studio. But he's like, not that good. So that that fails. Well, he and Cassandra um, have that in common, don't they? <laughs> they do. Well, they really do. Because the actually the portrait that you see everywhere of the Brontes, which is pretty much the only portrait, was painted by Branwell. I don't think it's terrible. Um, but it's the three of them. And then you can kind of see this thing behind them. And that was actually Branwell, but he like then ended up painting himself out. Oh, so so is it just like lurking? Yeah, it's just like this like white mess in the background lurking. I know it's probably in a moment of like self hatred. So he also um, after I believe this was after the portrait studio went down, he ended up at some point. Well, he he got a job as a tutor, but then he ended up having an affair with the uh with the mom and the family which we'll talk about in a whole episode with Anne. yeah it he just was a fuck up all around and then i believe he got a job with the railroad but then a bunch of money went missing oh, and he was fired yeah so he just could not keep it together um he became an alcoholic and so i, I do think that's a really interesting sort of dynamic family dynamic that they're they're dealing with um you know, this addict in the family. And really all of their sort of the, all of their hopes are pretty much on Branwell, right? Because, you know, and he's, and he's not getting adopted by any rich families. (laughs) So the Brontes pretty much are like, we have to make a living. Um, But there was this sort of magical protected time before that really kind of came down on them. And that's when they were sort of living at home after their sisters and their mother had died and they were um, writing stories together. And those stories kind of came about by Patrick going to, I believe it was, it could have been Liverpool. Can't remember. Went on a business trip, came back and he brought 12 toy soldiers uh, for Branwell. But immediately when he brought them in, like Charlotte just grabbed one and was like, okay, right. I'm playing with this. And she called it the Duke of Wellington. She was like obsessed with the Duke of Wellington because they were all (laughs) reading like Blackwood magazine, which had like ghost stories, but also had like these military stories in there. And she was like obsessed with the Duke of Wellington. And so she takes this, you know, this toy soldier and she starts making up stories about the Duke of Wellington. And then Patrick takes another one and, you know, gives him a name and Emily takes one. And I remember Emily like naming one gravy because he looks grave. And then they all like start making up these stories and they create this uh, kingdom called Angria. And uh, that is where, well, I, we're going to do another episode where we actually talk about the juvenilia for both. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think so, so I'll kind of leave a little bit of that aside. Um, but I will say uh, they spend years sort of like, making up stories and even um writing little like teeny tiny little magazines for their soldiers and um they have plays and 
poetry and they're really like workshopping and really like working on their craft at this time. Um, another thing that they have in common with the Austins as well is that both of their parents have huge libraries. And I know with the Brontes and I, I'm pretty sure this is the same with the Austins. Their reading is uncensored. Like they can, yeah. they can just read whatever they want. So, you know, this is a great time where they're, they're, they're both writing they're um, reading, they're discussing. Like, I think this is what the families really have in common. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, Patrick ends up having some health problems. Oh no. I know. And I think he had something wrong with his lungs. And then he's like, oh God, I got to get these guys like on the right track. Like what if something happens to me? What's going to happen to my children? So in 1831, um, Charlotte goes to Rowhead School and she's going to go there to become a governess, basically, get you know. And she was an excellent student and everyone loved her. Um, after a time, she was a little weird. People made fun of her because she spoke with an Irish accent. Yeah. Did Those she? kids were so... She did. Um, well, this is what I have read. We'll take it with a grain of salt. But because those kids were so isolated and, you know, like they didn't have a carriage and they kind of just spent most of their time at home, they pretty much sounded like their father. Okay. Um, Emily ends up uh, joining her at Rowhead, but she cannot take it. She basically just has a meltdown there. Oh. And Charlotte writes to her father and is like, if she stays here, like, I think she's going to die. So Emily goes back home. Very, very dramatic. Um, she can't. She can't handle it. She can't hang. She's not into it. She wants to be at home. She wants to, you know, be with nature. She doesn't want to do this. She doesn't want to be a teacher. Like that's the thing, and it sucks because they're at a certain class, right? Like they can only become teachers or governesses. Like yeah, they can't do like some of the lower jobs, but also right. they need the money. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Like, I think when we talk about women's roles during this time, we often talk about, you know, women not being able to be doctors or lawyers, you know, whatever. But they also are stuck. Like, they can't be dressmakers or housekeepers. Like, Emily would have been very happy being like a baker or a housekeeper. Yeah. Um, But she, you know, the only option for her is to really be a teacher. And she uh, hates people. So... It's just not going to work out for her. It really for all of them. Like they all, none of them really want to be teachers, but they are very, very intelligent women. So there you go. Um, Anne ends up joining Charlotte at Rowhead. And um, I think maybe we might leave it here because uh, what happens is we get into a conversation about like their education and then Mm -hmm. their work. Yeah. Because all all of the women do teach, even Emily, and all of that is really really tied into their novels, and especially because you know Agnes Gray is basically like about the family that she was working for as a governess. So I think with the Brontes, we just kind of leave that there, and we will talk about um, their school and their jobs in a later episode. Yeah, because even, you know, with with Jane Austen, didn't cover a huge amount outside of her siblings. No. And, like, we took them to the end of their careers. 
We don't know about Jane. We've not talked about the move to Bath. No, that's true. You're right. You're very right. There's so much to say. There's, There's so still much, so to, much say. to say. There's so much to say and it's almost 3 a.m. for me. Oh, boy. Just like pounding I'm, I'm the tea. I'm waking up. This is like 10 to 9. Oh. It's pretty nice. This is just a good time. Having a lovely is day. Is the sun, the sun is shining? It I'm is. Sure. Yeah. Oh, I'm so jealous. I haven't seen the sun for like days and days. <laughs> Where's it gone? Leave the house. I don't know. I don't know. So, so sad. I guess that wraps up Steventon versus Howard. And it probably, I would say in this case, the actual like physical place of Steventon probably wins. Not not as much death and destruction and just like you know. Yeah, yeah. I bet it was it was quite nice. Seems seems Hampshire probably, is yeah. lovely. Hampshire is like oh. a good county. I'm a fan. I should visit. I just yeah. I do. I do think that there. It what it boils down to is that the road forks to people live or people die and the Austin's got the living and the Bronte's got the death and the Bronte's had to stay where they were and the Austin's got to travel around and you can kind of see like I I do understand more why um so there's that there's that letter from is it Charlotte Bronte she's like oh I read that Jane Austen woman that you recommended and I thought she was terrible I can't remember what the letter is but like I kind of get why they maybe thought Jane Austen was a bit flippant or silly because for them yeah. like life was it was really tough and there were these very hard and real consequences to actions and stuff and I'm not saying that those aren't in Jane Austen's novels but certainly like there's nothing as grim as for sure growing up next to a graveyard she kind of comes closest to it in Northanger Abbey I guess but that is in itself a satire of gothic literature so right for she's sure doing it to no be I silly. think you're right like for you know the Brontes I think especially Charlotte you know who often is is very insecure about her looks especially like I don't think she ever really thought marriage was a reality for her i think she yeah. would read a jane austen book and go that is a complete fantasy like that's just yeah it's that's not, not life it just wasn't it wasn't life. life for them was it no it wasn't life for but them. it was absolutely so. true to life for jane right exactly interesting oh yeah. that's so yeah i guess i feel okay. like maybe i understand them a bit more now oh good oh good i'm so glad I have more. I have more in store. I mean, I can't wait for us to talk about Wuthering Heights, Wuthering which Heights. I have a lot of conflicted feelings about. Okay, I'm a bit like scared I... of Wuthering Heights because I've watched um, I've watched a film of it, and I thought it was <laughs> there was I've got some issues with some things. I think you need to read it. So yeah. I would say, you know, if you guys are listening and you may be reading along with us. I would suggest that be the next book that you revisit, um, especially if you haven't read it since high school or since you were a teenager, because it is a um, it's really interesting to read as an adult. It is really powerful. It's really got like forceful language. I think it's a hard book to adapt. I don't know which um, which version you saw. I don't know if you saw the Tom Hardy version, which is what? interesting. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I saw but, the and the the recent one, the movie. There was like a there was a film, and I think it was like really it had some really terrible reviews. Yeah, that one. I've seen it. I've seen it. Um, I, I have a lot, we'll discuss it. But we'll yeah, I, I think uh, actually don't don't watch anything. I would say read it, which you can go on Amazon and get like a Kindle version for free. Oh, if you dig around. Or listen to the Kate Bush song. It's up to you. You can either like reading <laughs> the that? book will take ages. Watching the film will be a bit shorter. Or there's like this very conveniently short song that you can listen to and it gives you all the information that you need. Which I actually have not ever listened to or watched the video, but I will before we tape our next podcast. No, please don't, because I want to f- <laughs> I really want to film you listening to this song. <laughs> oh boy. That should be our end credit music. <laughs> for sure so yeah my suggestion read Wuthering Heights do you have any suggestions for our listeners to um, read maybe maybe just because we were talking about the Navy so much can I can I just recommend that you if you haven't read Persuasion please go and read it alright yeah. it's the best one it is the, it's the best one the Navy are in it a bunch uh, and if you don't want to read a Jane Austen book Go and look up Horatio Nelson. He oh wow! Was, he okay. was great. He was a he was a fun time. There you go. You got homework. <laughs> so thank you guys for listening so much. Yeah, thank to this you. episode. It's nice and long. Yeah. And I'm totally loopy and I just like crazy on caffeine, but hopefully you guys got the gist of it and. Uh, You'll be here for our next episode, which which will be, (laughs) um, I think we're going to discuss Love and Friendship versus The Secret. Yeah. So some early writings. Very early work. And Charlotte. Yeah. Very early work. And um, after that, we are going to do um, Darcy versus Heathcliff. Yes. And not Benedict Cumberbatch in sight. We'll see about that. (laughs) So anyway, thank you guys again for listening and have a lovely day or night or, you know, whatever. Enjoy your lunch break. (laughs) Yes. Enjoy your treadmill time. Bye. Bye.